on women, war, and peace too. What I wanted then is what I want now, freedoms, including fighting for women's rights specifically. It's about basic human rights issues for the whole of Northern Ireland. As Bangladeshi women, we are proving to those back home that we can serve the public. We want our homeland. We want to live free. From WNAT in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNAT Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Women, War and Peace 2 is a follow-up to a series of films originally broadcast on PBS seven years ago. The series demonstrates how women have been involved in shaping some of the most significant international stories of recent years, and in the process, risking their lives for peace and changing history. Recently, Columbia University hosted a launch event for the series, which featured a discussion moderated by Amanpour and Company's Alicia Menendez. The participants included the award-winning filmmakers Julia Basha, Gita Gandabir, Imer O'Neill, and Ginny Redeker, who is also an executive producer of the series. In addition, the conversation featured Nobel Peace Laureate Lema Bowie, the protagonist of the first series film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, who also serves as the executive director of the Women, Peace and Security program at Columbia. Opening the discussion, Abigail E. Disney, the executive producer of Women, War and Peace 2. A deep thank you to all of you for being here tonight. This is a, a very momentous night for all of us who've been working at this for a very long time. And I'm not just talking about the filmmakers, I'm talking about the women themselves. So I did do some thank yous earlier, but again, I want to just make sure, Neil and WNET, thank you so much. Lee Bollinger and Columbia University you rolled out the orange carpet for us and we're very grateful. And I just want to make sure that we, we know that aside from the filmmakers who you're going to meet in a minute, we are very lucky to have with us Monica McWilliams, who's somewhere. Where are you? There she is. Um, Zahira Kamal um, from Palestine. And Hend Nafea from Cairo. There she is. So they say we live in strange times. That's what everybody says. All over the world, authoritarian regimes are looming and growing. Authoritarians suppress dissent. They vilify the other. They whip people, their people up into chaos and violence. And every one of these leaders invokes one word over and over again when they want to whip people up. And that word is a simple one. It's again. Again is a declaration that things are not as they should be. And more than that, that they are heading in the wrong direction. We need a course correction, they say. We need to change ourselves back to what we used to be. Back then, there was clarity. Back then, there was order. Back then, we had no reason to fear. These are not strange times. The threat of authoritarianism is an old one. And the sense of dread that so many people go about with isn't of what might or might not happen. It is of what seems all too perfectly clear will happen. Lema said to me yesterday, why are you always surprised? Stop being surprised. It is therefore with great pride and profound sense of purpose and relevance that I introduce Women More in Peace to tonight. Many of those who lead governments and armies, the worst ones at least, find it very impertinent 
that we persist in asserting that women matter in war and peace. And I can't think of anything more pertinent to these times. Authoritarianism is the pure, boiled down essence of patriarchy. <laughs> it's the assertion that might makes right all of the time, pure and simple. But the history of democratic movements around the world tells us otherwise. That history tells us that right makes might, not the other way around. Persistence, a belief in interdependence, the belief that caregiving matters and is central to the human condition, and the courage to confront the forces of regression, all of these things keep movements for justice going. And all of these things are what every one of these women does every day when they get out of bed. They persist, they rely upon each other, they give care, and they confront the forces of regression. This is not universally true, and women as a class are not perfect. But the fact remains that war is the most gendered activity in human life, and the corollary is that peace has a significant gender aspect to it. Around the world, in every culture, Peace is the necessary precondition for a woman to succeed in what that culture demands of her. Women, War, and Peace is our chance to restore women to the narrative of women, power, politics, and peace on Earth. It is an assertion that despite thousands of years of literature and folklore and mythology and religion and culture, to the contrary, we are important and what we say does matter and if you look at war through our eyes, your calculations of the cost and consequence of business and usual will be forever changed. So with that, um, Alicia Menendez can um, start us off with our panel. Thanks. So, Abby, I do want to start with you because this project comes out of this idea that the media gets it wrong in their portrayal of women and peace. So give me a sense of, of how they're getting it wrong. <laughs> well, I, he wanted a short answer, right? <laughs> you got to keep it to like 30 seconds, 45. You know, um, violence and bloodshed and gunfire um, is exercises of magnetic attraction mm -hmm. on, on people everywhere. This is just the natural way of things, unfortunately. And, and that's why violent video games sell, and that's why violent movies sell. There is a certain centrifugal centripetal force. <laughs> um, be in there. Um, so you have to resist it to be able to see the rest of what's happening. And so I think that the media is just as susceptible to that force as anybody else. And so when we went to make Pray the Devil Back to Hell, the first film, there just was no footage, no footage, no footage. And CNN was there, Sky News was there, BBC was there. We found thousands of hours of footage of the combat and very little footage of what was actually women, not as victims, not as objects, but as subjects. Um, so it's a corrective. What we're trying to do is a corrective to this sort of saturation in the media of the, the fighting um, so that we can lift up the peacemaking. Limobo, if you tell the story honestly, what is then the story that you tell about the role that women play in active peacekeeping? Well, I think if you tell the story honestly, you're telling the story of things that people never really see. <laughs> um, most times when you've survived war, 
I'm shocked that you go into places and spaces and no one really asks you, how did you survive? Mm. You know, how did you manage to get 5,000 children out? How did 1,000 women survive? You know, and the true story is that in the midst of all of these, these are the people who are negotiating people's lives. They are the ones who are going out there finding food. But most importantly, even before the UN fly in, these are the people who are beginning the conversation about peace when the first bullet is fired. So that's the true story. That's the story that people tend to miss most of the time, that these people, even though they are victims, even though they are the ones who are bearing the greatest brunt of the conflict, but they are the ones who are more interested in peace than anything else. Amir O'Neill, I'm going to have you tee up your film, Goodbye to Dinosaurs, and tell us about the clip that we're going to see. In Weave Goodbye to Dinosaurs, there is a statement made by a civil rights activist in Ireland called Bernadette Devlin, who said, it's not that women get written out of history, it's that they never get written in. Hmm. And when Bernadette had said that statement in telling the story of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition, what's often left out of the Good Friday Agreement is the fact that women actively participated in its creation. So in many ways, it was an untold story. I'm 33 years old. When the Women's Coalition formed in 1996, I was 10. I wasn't taught their story in school. I wasn't taught about it in history class. And the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed in 1998, took two years of talks, but decades of activism. And it was the activism of women at grassroots politics and community politics that enabled 70 women to put their hands forward and stand within six weeks like literally six weeks of saying, I have an idea, let's, let's form an all-female political party and let's have a say in negotiating peace uh, at future. Uh, it was those various networks that enabled the women's rights activists of Northern Ireland to come together and form the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. It's because of those that was, peace was announced, they could enable and motivate and get people, women, into the room. Um, in doing so, uh, you know, we're looking back now with what, 21 years after the peace agreement, but the Northern Ireland's Women's Coalition enabled human rights, equality and inclusion to be reflected in our peace agreement. Um, this clip that we're about to show shows that it wasn't an easy journey, even though in six weeks they were able to form and get seats at the table. They, uh, 70 women put their hands up. I'm delighted to say two of those 70 women, Monica McWilliam is one of the founding members of the party. And Anne Carr, who was one of the other 70 oh, wow. women. <laughs> we're, we're able to step forward and, and have a say in literally negotiating peace. And it was because of their experience at the community, politics and grassroots level. You know, these were women who in the 70s were fighting for domestic violence recognition, who helped set up women's aid centres in some of the most Republican or loyalist areas, who helped set up integrated primary schools in the 1980s when Catholics and Protestants did not want to be integrated. And it was because of that experience and what they brought to the table that Monica and Pearl Sager were the only two women who had seats at the table. You will notice that we... Yeah. <laughs> um, we deliberately filmed all of our 
wonderful woman sitting at a table, just to you know, make it more <laughs> obvious. But the clip that we're about to show shows it wasn't easy. Northern Ireland was incredibly male dominated. Um, politics, uh, electoral politics, because politics is everything, but electrical politics did not have many women in frontline politics. So this clip shows that this is what the Women's Coalition had to endure in order to have their voice heard for peace. Women's Coalition are standing in this area. Come out and give your vote to make a difference. What do you know, a group of women campaigning is a bit of a joke. So it was something to be laughed at. I do remember this, you know, this idea of, you know, go back to your kitchen and the hen party and all this kind of nonsense. And that view started to come very clear when we got to the stage of trying to actually seek votes. That's when things did become hostile. Some got death threats, some were told, how dare you? Some didn't, some in the beginning couldn't even say that they were involved. And my family were saying, oh yeah, I suppose this has to be done, but does it have to be you? Yeah, there were, there were scary moments, but uh, there's, there's a sense actually of freedom and facing it. I wouldn't vote for a woman, Andre, in this circumstance. A daft question. Hello. Hello. Hello there. They aren't representative of the decent Ulster woman that I speak to. The Ulster woman in the past has seen herself very much as being in support of her man. As far as those individuals representing the women's coalition is concerned, I think that uh, people will draw their own conclusions by the fact that they're prepared to come out of the closet now. Political parties and groupings should be regarded as people on their merits, on the vision that they will bring to politics, the commitment they will bring to politics, not just because they're men or not just because they're women. I do have some dubious thoughts about how they, as a cross-community group, can look at this election and have a, a, a policy that is, that is at all rational. Well, I know there's criticism at the minute that we, women are going to look foolish if this doesn't come off. And that's very unfortunate. I don't feel we will look foolish, even if we didn't get in. We've learned over the last 25 years how to cope with setbacks and different ceasefires breaking down. And I think we'll cope very, very well, because as women, we generally do. Women are 52% of the population in Northern Ireland. We have a right to be at the talks table. It's our futures being talked about, and it shouldn't be talked about solely by oh, men. Oh, no, I agree. Can you realise what's happening here? The future of this part of the world is going to be decided and there are going to be no women there. They're going to be outside minding the kids. This is actually historic. Have you ever in Northern Ireland seen a group of all shades of political colour sitting in one place at one time, all ready to talk to each other? It's like a microcosm of what should be happening in the Northern Ireland and the women are showing it. Julia Basha, tell us about Nela and the uprising. So I've been working with the team at Just Vision for the past 15 years, documenting Palestinians and Israelis who are using nonviolent resistance to end the occupation and build a future of dignity and equality and justice in the region for both communities. We've been hearing over the 15 years of working underground that a lot of the inspiration that activists were doing the day in, day out work today, they take inspiration from something that happened 30 years ago, which was the first Palestinian Intifada. Intifada means uprising in Arabic, and it started in 87. 
and quickly spread throughout the Palestinian territories. What happened in the process of making this film was that we didn't actually make a film for the Woman War and Peace series. We made a film because we wanted to tell the story of what happened during that uprising that has inspired generations of activists later to continue to carry the work of nonviolent resistance. What we uncovered in the process of research is that the reason why the First Intifada was such an exceptional time of community organizing, of sustaining the healthcare, the education, the, the entire like, uh, sub, you know, sustenance of a community was because women took the leadership roles during that time. And when we realized that, we knew that that was the film because it was a story that hadn't reached international audiences. Very few people knew that the First Intifada was not only a national liberation movement, but was a women's liberation movement as well. <laughs> and Palestinian women for the first time had the opportunity of showing what kind of society they would create if they had the visibility and the opportunity to do so. During the Intifada, women weren't just following orders. We were instrumental in making decisions alongside men. Women's resistance went hand in hand with national resistance. tell us about the clip we're gonna see from the Trials of Spring. Well, the Trials of Spring is about um, Egypt and the revolution that happened there, or the uprising that happened that started in Tahrir Square that everyone knew about. And we were just finishing the first series of Women, War, and Peace, and I knew from all of our experience that, that, that women were gonna play a really critical role. And during the time that, of Tahrir Square, the women were 50% of the people in the square, there was this, everyone talked about this incredible feeling of unity as if they were like one organism. And so I knew that I wanted to go there and see what was gonna happen. And I met Hen Nefeo, who had been arrested. Um, and the story of Trials of Spring really kind of covers her story from being a small, coming from a small village and then kind of going to Cairo, participating in the revolution. Um, but what also happens very quickly in Egypt, um, so it almost is a cautionary tale for what happens when women aren't included. Because on International Women's Day, which was just a month after Mubarak fell, um, women go to the square to protest, to actually demand women's rights. And quickly, men turned against them. And I remember actually I was with Lema the day that I heard this on the news and Lema was saying to me, if the men protesters don't stand up and support the women, this revolution is doomed. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that is ultimately what happened. And so you're gonna see a clip of what happened. Who survived Mubarak's rule, Skaf's rule, Morsi's government, and now back to a government backed by the army. And the same activists are being arrested and tried. It's not hard to remember what I wanted in the revolution, because what I wanted then is what I want now, freedom, including fighting for women's rights specifically. Gita Danbir, would you tell us a little bit about the clip we're gonna see from A Journey of a Thousand Miles? 
Sure. So, um, so the film, A Journey of a Thousand Miles, Peacekeepers, is about an all-female, all-Muslim formed police unit that was sent from Bangladesh to Haiti in 2013 on a UN peacekeeping mission. And this was uh, post-earthquake Haiti, although it had been, the earthquake happened a few years earlier, Haiti was still in a devastated state. And the UN at the time, and I think still today, is, was, making, was making great efforts to try to recruit more women into the peacekeeping forces. And the need for women on the ground was great. And I think in most, I should say, in most post-disaster and post-conflict zones always remains great. Um, women in peace and security roles is critical. But so we, Charmine, uh, my co-director, Charmine Obeyed-Chinoy, who's in Pakistan, so couldn't be here today, she and I were incredibly interested in the idea of Muslim women in these roles in particular, in peacekeeping roles. Um, I think for us, we have the, the narrative at that time that continues today around Muslim women in the media was, we found to be pretty disturbing. Uh, the women were either portrayed as victims or seen as aiding and abetting terrorism, but not really having their own voices. They were not really ever portrayed as complete human beings, in a way, if I may say that. Part of the story as well that was really interesting to us was the women's journey themselves. These were women from a traditional country and a patriarchal country and who had never oftentimes even left the area that they lived in. They had never been on a plane. So what, what did it mean for them to leave their country and travel abroad for a year on mission? And that's really what the film is about. What was their impact on the ground and what was the impact on them? When I got selected for the mission, my husband was totally against it. Peacekeeping is a broad concept. As Bangladeshi women, we are proving to those back home that we can serve the public. how different each of these clips is and yet how many threads run through all of these films. I can't wait to watch them in their totality. A very technical question for you, which is we talked about how there's the challenge of not having access to footage. Which other technical challenges did you run into as filmmakers and what workarounds did you utilize in order to deliver a full project? I sent it to the group at large. <laughs> I'll start sharing. It isn't, it isn't necessarily a technical challenge, but um, when you're dealing with stories that have been so traumatic yes. and that people have not talked about in a long time, mm -hmm. to try to sit down with these women and have them relive these experiences and tell you about everything, it, it really feels like you are asking them to potentially go through a traumatic experience again by retelling all of that. So one of the challenges that we had was just how to be very thoughtful, very conscious, really working together with the protagonists in how to right. tell the story. And I just want to you know, acknowledge, Abby, Abby mentions, but Zahira Kamal, who was one of the interviewees in our film and who went through that process with us of telling the stories here with us. And I found that the experience for them at the end was once they actually saw the product and got to see it on the big screen and their stories reflected on them was transformative 
for their experiences. So Nyla Ayash, for example, was someone who had been very reluctant to talk in public. Um, and after the first screening of the film, now she has been wanting to come to screenings, want to speak publicly, doing media interviews, and really kind of coming to full um, like terms with that. Uh, her son, Majd, who was in prison with her, shared with me that he has been trying for years to get his mom to do therapy to resolve some of the trauma, and she has always refused, but that this film became her therapy. Oh. And how much he saw her overcome some of these issues. Um, and I, I find that that's part of the, we, we want to talk about what it does to bring their narrative to the outside world, but also for these women to have their narrative uh, asserted and validated. And what they went through on the big screen you know, is, is a very powerful thing. We did not at all face the challenge of footage, because if there was anything that was really filmed, it was right. here Square. And I think Abby alluded to that earlier. But the biggest challenge, actually, I think, for me was that we were following Hen's story. And Hen was arrested for participating in a demonstration in November of 2011. And it was the first time her parents knew that she had been participating, and so they then really punished her and kind of imprisoned her. And her story became like, it was, the, it was like almost a microcosm of what was happening in, in Egypt. And so, well, I had gone there thinking we were going to tell this wonderful, happy story that, in fact, we watched three different regime changes in three years. And Hen's case, when it went first from being with all these other demonstrators that got more and more isolated, the Muslim Brotherhood comes in, and the, her case with the 220 other people that she was arrested with becomes a special case in Egypt that then eventually goes to a terrorism court because it was a fight against the military. And the very guy who had said about the virginity test that the military had to do it is now the president of Egypt, and he's in power. Now he's just made it so that he can stay in power until 2034. And by the end of the film, Hend was sentenced to a life in prison for participating in the demonstration against the military. It was a very different film than I thought that I was going to make. So there were many, many traumas along the way, not the least of which was when Hen was sentenced. She was sentenced in absentia. And it, she was able to make it to, through different me methods and kind of sneaking out of the country. She actually was with us for the opening of the film at the Human Rights Festival, and she's here tonight, so. <laughs> Amir, can you, can you talk a little bit about the experience of revisiting something you had lived through and watched as a child and come to it with the consciousness of a woman? Sure, yeah. <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I alluded to it earlier. The Good Friday Agreement, effectively, you know, I was one of the first generations to benefit from that. So in many ways, where I live now and, and I've always have, in, originally from Derry in, in the north of Ireland, but in Belfast, we have peace. And I think back then, especially for the Women's Coalition, I remember one of the members told me that violence was the norm and peace was very rare. I'm very lucky to live where it's the complete opposite. But what we still struggle with is reconciliation. So as you know, it's, I turned 33 last week, so I, I feel as each year goes on, um, 
this, this, you're a young director, <laughs> to, to move away. But, you know, I was only 10 when, when Monica and, and Anne, you know, got together in 12 when the Good Friday Agreement happened. And I've been brought up in a country that has seen great change. I'm very politically minded. I'm a proud feminist woman. Um, I'm a proud lesbian woman. So I, you know, I've been brought up to have benefited from human rights and, and somewhat level of equality um, and a big level of inclusion. But it's made me recognize that my generation has to take great learning from these women. You know, I, you can talk the talk, but you know, you took to the streets in, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. And Monica alluded to it earlier when she started to march for International Women's Day. You know, you had one hand here while you were shouting from the side of the face. When I started to get involved more in politics and when I first attended my first Pride march, I did the same with one hand. And, but by the other side, I was very proud. And I struggled with that because I wanted to have both hands down by my side. And in meeting you all and in you telling me your story, you've taught me that you have to speak out, that you have to have confidence and courage, and that if you believe in, in something, you know, you have to ask for it. Obviously, given where we are right now, and especially today uh, with Brexit, you know, there's never been a more important or pertinent time for the people to talk and to yeah. speak out and, and to say what matters to us and what actually will impact our day-to-day -day lives. So it's been a deep honor to, to have in some way tried to tell your story. You know, your, your previous question about technicalities, I had 70 women to choose from <laughs> who, you know, were politically minded and could talk and we're very charismatic. <laughs> we, we didn't struggle with much archive. We struggled to find it. It was there. It just happened to be in the basement of the BBC, covered in dust <laughs> and, you know, relabeled something else. And it was through a great uh, archive producer who found the footage and a great photographer, Leslie Doyle, who had the mindset back then to follow this group of women for no reason. Right. In, in her mind, she just thought there's something happening here. But, you know, often it's, it's who appears in the archive helps define who you interview, because when you can see someone from 20 years ago showing what they did and then them telling their story today, it, it creates a great, you know, deep resonance. But there are many bad stories about Northern Ireland. There are many stories that are, are difficult given our contested history. But I deeply admire the values of the Women's Coalition. Um, as Jane Morris said, it's a microcosm of how our society can work um, on the issues that do deeply matter. So they've, they've taught me more about what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a feminist and what it means to be political. Gita, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you talked a little bit about the, the misconceptions or the narratives around Muslim women. And, and yet I think most filmmakers go into the field and often find they're contending with their own biases and their own assumptions. In, in making this film, what did you learn? What was the most surprising thing that you had to contend with? Um, I think the most, it's interesting, the being, I mean, Charmaine, our team, we made sure to have a team that was 
basically comprised mostly of South Asian women, I think. So there, as far as the familiarity with the community that we were documenting, there was a lot of comfort there, and there was like a lot of an ease of understanding. And the women, at first, they were careful with us, but then eventually we became very close. Our cultures are all very similar. I'm originally from India. Sharmini is Pakistani. The women are Bangladeshi. We were all one. At one point, it was one country. <laughs> so this is, uh, you know, some of us have a memory. I mean, our parents have a memory of that. But uh, I think that, you know, there's, there's traditions and customs that are, of course, very similar. In the beginning, like I said, they were worried about being very professional. By the end, they were trying to arrange the marriage of a couple of APs. <laughs> you know, it was very funny. Um, so, so we became very close. The, I think the things that were the most challenging, it was a verite film, so we were shooting it ourselves. There was no, the archive was not an issue. But the challenges were really about what happened on the ground. The Minusta was a very troubled mission. The women entered uh, without a great deal of knowledge about it, about what was happening. There was the cholera epidemic that was brought by you know, Nepali peacekeepers. There was um, a lot of anger and distrust that had been fomenting for 10 years prior uh, among the population. Um, that wanted the, the mission out. Um, and the women were frankly ill-prepared for a lot of what they had to deal with. Interestingly, in, in Bangladesh, women are assigned, even though there are a large number of women in the police force, women are often assigned to administrative roles. They do not actually do the work that they were meant to do in Haiti, which was public safety, crowd control, patrolling. And so when they showed up in Haiti, they were not actually in a, a good position to, to do some of the work they had to do, and they required additional training. Again, like you, Ginny, when you make a verite film, there's always <laughs> a lot of surprises along the way. We didn't know. We didn't know you know, that their training was not necessarily up to par and we didn't understand the challenges they would face. But I think what was really incredible was because of that, we were able to really watch them grow. So the, the big surprise was what they faced head on when they got there and in some ways their own surprise at what they were facing. But to see them over the course of the year really, really step up to the role was impressive and with the knowledge of all that had come before them. One of the things they also struggled with was the lack of trust in the community just of, of UN peacekeepers in general, particularly the male UN peacekeepers who, I mean, there have been numerous scandals that were a precursor to them being there, of, you know, mm. involving sexual abuse, you know, human trafficking, all sorts of terrible things that we, I think, that were in the news here about what UN peacekeepers had done. And the women had to overcome that. But I, I, I'm happy to say that I feel that they, they were able to, and they were also able to, to sort of bring their, the knowledge of what they learned back to Bangladesh to train other women. Leima, I love these stories. But the purpose of sharing these stories is really to change the reality on the ground. And so I wonder, how do elevating these stories actually change the work? Well, first thing first, when you take a look at the work that women do in these different conflict contexts, you tend to take a step back. Putting these work out there is basically debunking the myth that nothing happens on the ground. You know, Abby um, talked about the, the, the sexiness, and this is for lack of a better word, that's not what she used, but I don't know why I'm using it. <laughs> 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 I 
of militarism, you know, how militarism is overly sexualized in the media and different places. So the narrative of all of these different spaces is that nothing is happening without the UN presence, without the presence of all of these heavy artilleries and all of the different things. So when people like Jeannie, Abby, and others come in, the first thing they do is to transform that narrative and put a focus on the humanitarian need in these communities. So it, it, it moves away from war into really the suffering of people. Because if you look at the way wars are talked about is statistics. It's almost like they take the humans out of it and it's all robots and machine and all of these different things. So elevating these stories, the first thing is bringing humans back into the whole narrative of war. When we started protesting in Liberia and when we decided we're going to do sex strike and all of these things, it was trying to bring the media attention back to us to say, hey, we're here. Our children are dying. They are the ones that are being conscripted. We're being raped on a daily basis. So it's not just about Charles Taylor and his boys. It's about people who are actually dying in the dozens. The second thing that elevating this story is doing for all of us is that there is always this narrative of where are the competent women to negotiate peace. And these stories are basically saying they're there. You know, um, someone was talking about peace agreements and how they bring these men around the table. And I was sitting there just thinking to myself, how do you bring people who believe that the only way they can solve political crisis is through the barrel of the gun to negotiate peace? <laughs> There's absolutely no way. It's not in their DNA, it's not in their vocabulary. They don't have the intelligence to negotiate peace. So these women have been doing all of this. So when you elevate or make visible the work that they're doing at the community level, you're in this, you're really saying to the rest of the world, you're looking for people year a day. The third thing that you do when all of these stories come out there, I like the fact that you really make mind day when you talk about the role of these women because there is always this thing of the tensions between the younger generation and the older generation about their feminism and their activism. In this quick fix Google generation, the young people believe that there's nothing to learn. And when I, when I, when I talk about this, I get a bit emotional because I would not be sitting here had it not been for one woman called Sugars, who took me into the room when I was shaking and really afraid to take on a women's movement, she said, shut the hell up. <laughs> she said, you see those women out there? They can smell fear. Walk outside with your head up high and never bow. Go out there and do your thing. But I was also able to do that work because she stepped out of the spotlight and thrust me into it. So that's the fourth thing, that intergenerational mentorship is the way for women's leadership. So elevating <laughs> all of these stories 
is basically doing those things. But finally, 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 when people begin to think that women are not politicians, that's crazy. Because the personal is also political. The reason why we get involved in peace processes in the first place is because the price of food is political. The cost of medicine is political. Our bodily integrity is part of the politics. You know, so when you're talking rape and abuse and all of these different things and people are saying, oh, it's just women's issue, no. It's about the politics of our day. There's no way anyone in this United States today can talk about reproductive health, reproductive rights, and do not talk about the Trump's administration thing on it. So it is politics. So putting these films out there is basically saying there is no way you can have over 52% of the population and keep them out of processes. It's like seeing with your one eye cover. Mm -hmm. I have a, a question for you, Abby, and then I'm going to throw it out to the group, but these are women's stories told by women, and that matters. Mm -hmm. How does it change the storytelling to have women behind the lens? Uh, it changes everything because there's just stuff that we notice and see among each other and ourselves that men are just not on the same wavelength with. Maybe someday we'll get there, but there's a wavelength problem. And part of me thinks like, well, why do we need men to tell any of these stories? I mean, like, why are we even asking? Because there are so many talented women. It's not like we need to go looking for men. I believe that 20 years or something in New York City that I spent working with grassroots women in Brooklyn and in the Bronx and in all these places where there were women's programs, grassroots women who identified a problem and stepped in to solve it, who'd done miraculous things. That was the only reason that when I got to Liberia, that story made any sense to me. Because, you know, journalist after journalist had walked right past it because they didn't credit it. There's this kind of tyranny of low expectations. And, and the presumption is that some kind of fairy story, the presumption is that it's some kind of happy tale we're telling each other. But these are true stories of really effective change. And the erasure process is relentless and unforgiving. I just want to say one other thing, which is um, you talked about sexual violence and peacekeepers. And I forgot to call out someone in our audience. There she is. Maddie Reese is here also. And you just need to know that if it, if it weren't for Maddie, we wouldn't have ever really heard the story of what was happening in Bosnia in terms of sex trafficking and sexual violence by the UN. And um, there's a film called The Whistleblower, you may have seen it, with Rachel Weisz. She's played by Vanessa Redgrave, which is the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> um, but uh, she, her activism as a UN person you know, got her fired <laughs> and, and, and lots of that. It was incredibly personally courageous what she did to stand up to the United Nations because there was systemic sexual abuse. And this is another reason why women are incredibly important in this in the sector. It's not just that they dismiss the importance of sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is woven into the project. And so that is a, a feature, not a glitch. We bring the fundamental revulsion that most men lack um, when it comes, I'm sorry, but you do, just confess. <laughs> And, and so it's our sense of urgency that changes the dynamics of the way we approach problems like that. 
I'm going to open this up to Q&A very shortly, so just get your questions going in your mind. But Julia, one of the things I was struck by in the piece you showed us is this sort of second layer of women building a sisterhood and a support network around each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that manifests in the other films as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role women play not only as you know, the person in front, but the woman behind the woman? Yeah, the fascinating aspect of trying to bring that story to light is that there were so many layers to what the women were doing there, right? There is the layer of the Palestinian women had an opportunity once the Palestinian men were all arrested or killed or deported by the Israeli military, there was a vacuum and they took that opportunity. So they now had to strategize and think through how they're gonna actually run this widespread movement that included all different factions, right? So Hamas and Fatah and the DFLP and the PFLP, the whole Palestinian soup of political parties. They needed to moderate all of that. They also needed to establish all of the parallel structures to keep their communities going because they couldn't use the hospitals because the hospitals were controlled by the Israeli military. So they had to set up mobile clinics to basically give healthcare to people. The schools were all closed by the Israeli government. So now they needed to educate the kids on these underground schools inside their houses for which they would get 10 years in prison if they were caught having more than two kids inside their living room was signed that they were running an underground school and they were put in prison. On top of it, they were mothers where the fathers were in prison or and they had been deported. So they actually had to take care of their own families and be nurturing and be caregiving and play all of that traditional role of motherhood as part of that. And the only way they could do all of these three roles was because they were all supporting one another. Like they were a community that understood what was at stake, what they needed to do at the time. And they were like one really strong unit. One thing I do want to share to kind of recover, let's say the man in the room is that- (laughs) um, I'm alienated. (laughs) um, When the reporters at the time, the kind of big, big names in the late 80s and early 90s, like Ted Koppel and Bob Simon were sent to the region or asked to be sent and spend time on the ground and talked to the community, they got the story. And you see that in some of the footage in the film where they actually talk about what's going on in terms of the community organizing aspect of this, right? The moment they live, leave and, you know, this is obviously late 80s, there's a lot of big stories around, you know, the Soviet Union is collapsing. So the media is trying to cover all of these different stories. Once they leave the territories, everything that you see are again, the young Palestinian men throwing stones at, the, at the, the soldiers. That's all the images, right? And I think what we are grappling with here is also like, and now more than ever, how are we talking about these stories? What investment we're making to talk about these stories? What time we're giving to reporters to go underground and spend time in the region and look for these stories? And what are we demanding as an audience? Because that makes a Big difference. Media has a huge responsibility, but we are the consumers. We are consuming all of that. We have every day a decision to make. What story we're going to click on Twitter? What are we going to like on Facebook? What are we going to share when we are, you know, scrolling through hundreds and thousands of stories? We can make a big difference if we pay attention to how our choices are influencing dynamics on the ground and reinforcing all of these stereotypes. So I think thinking through and actually 
not feeling like we are hopelessly disempowered to actually make a difference. I think we all carry in us the ability to make a big difference in this story too. I'm gonna ask you, Jenny, though, a question, which was, you are covering one of the biggest stories of the last few years in real time. What discrepancies did you see between what you were seeing, what you were reporting, and what was being reported by the media at large? I mean, I think that it was actually an incredibly difficult story to follow because so oftentimes it would just be people demonstrating and throwing rocks or violent co confrontations between the police or the military and the demonstrators. I think the same things that everyone's saying is that what was going on behind the scenes, like Hend was a, a human rights worker. There was a, a huge number of women who were trying to get to the morgues to find out who was dead, trying to find how to get to to communicate with families, trying to bring laws that said you have to stop the torture. So there was a whole kind of movement for civil rights that continued to go on and kept continually pushing and pushing and pushing. And also the same thing there too, that there was a network of feminists who was really an incredible network um, because the, the attacks on women really started to escalate. They, they, they started, you know, certainly sexual harassment was not a new thing to Egypt, but it really accelerated and women then began to form groups to protect each other because the, the military nor the police would do anything to protect them. So there was a lot of stuff that went on on the ground of communities supporting each other and really fighting for human rights. So the story became, I think, in the media about the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, and the military. And somehow what was happening to just regular people, and particularly a lot of women, got totally lost. Thank you. I'm gonna ask what I always ask during Q&A, which is please make sure your question has a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> Thank you very much. I am so excited to see the series, but I don't own a TV. And I'm wondering <laughs> if there's a way that we can is, see this on the internet, will it be streamed? Streaming on pbs.org. Great, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> Tell all the other millennials too. <laughs> I have to say I'm so humbled and moved and inspired by the work each of you are doing and the narratives you've helped tell. And I'm wondering if you have any pieces of wisdom or pillars of support or like memories that you draw on when you're facing some of those moments that are just like, wow, how will I get through this? As I'm sure you all inevitably have in the course of your work. I'll tell you one thing. It, you always feel like you're being gaslighted. You know, when these stories disappear, you always feel like you're losing your mind. So if you see it, it's true. It's true because you see it. So do not ever question what you know to be the truth and then just pursue that. Don't let anybody else tell you it doesn't matter or that you're being ridiculous. Just forward. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. I have a question about the timing of a documentary. The reason I'm actually asking about the timing is because I'm currently finishing a PhD in genocide prevention. My, I come from Burundi and I'm currently pursuing a documentary that might be a bombshell. And I'm not sure about the timing of myself being there. I'm asking for wisdom from you, um, wisdom of knowledge. When is the timing when you don't have that broad network, but you still 
are driven to make sure that the past doesn't come to haunt us in 20, 30 years, like you said. When is the timing? Thank you very much. Come on, Lima, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that <laughs> well, I, I think the time is now when it happens. I go back to our own Liberian story. In 2017, we brought back the, we called ourselves the organizers of the mass action campaign into a room of 200 predominantly young people. And we screened Pray the Devil Back to Hell. This is in Monrovia. And we had Q&A. And we were shocked that all of the young people in that room between the ages of 15 and 25 had no recollection of the war. Two did not know the power of the work that we had done. And this brought us back to a space where we decided as a group again, that we're headed for elections. The potential of those youth between those ages to be used as tool for violence was very high. Mm. So we would take the film, we would wear the white t-shirts, but it would not be no more war. This time it would be sustain the peace and we'll go from community to community. And what we learned was that not only were we trying to steer them away from violence, but this was a moment where we were passing down the history of the women's movement. Of course, what we see in most of our countries, especially for those of us coming from the global south, is that our history in Liberia is still loaded with when the free slaves came, the Mayflower, my country, Days of D. We still sing some of those songs in school. And no one is revising the history to talk about the issues that led to war, what happened during the war, and who helped to negotiate peace and bring all of those things. So you're from Rwanda, I know they are fantastic, fabulous women. Burundi. Burundi, sorry. Doing great work in, in different parts of the world. Seek them out, start to ask. There is this woman called Marguerite Bankisi. Marguerite is now based in, she's between Belgium and um, Rwanda. And she took thousands of orphans out of Burundi so she's always in New York, she's at different places. She is a great person to sit to help you. So find people, and, and this is for young people coming from different parts. I sit with the older women till today to let them tell me stories about their kinds of feminism, and I'm amazed when I think that I am a fabulous feminist. When some other person tell me their story, I'm like, oh, oh my God, it's pill in comparison with. My grandmother is 111 years old. Mm. And when we talk about her life and some of the things I, I tell myself, this is where I learned my one-on-one feminism from. But coming back to the whole idea of mentorship, this generation of young people, the know-it-all generation, really need to begin to rethink that we don't know it all, even though we don't own TVs. I'm just throwing a shade at you, <laughs> Even though we don't own TVs and some of them don't own iPhones like myself, but there is a great, great learnings. You have like six iPads. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't own an iPhone, an iWatch, and all of the i. 
<laughs> the only eye I have is one Samsung with eye rating on the back, Abby. <laughs> and if I own an iPad, you send it to me for Christmas because you're too ashamed that I don't have those gadgets. <laughs> but that's another story for another day. But coming back to the topic on hand, your distraction, bad for my life. I think it's important for us to really re-emphasize the whole idea of intergenerational mentorship. I spent some time in the school systems within Columbia Barnard, and when you hear young people in this country say, feminism is for the global south, we don't need it anymore. <laughs> then you know that Cora-wise, you can't retire because you still have a lot of work to do. So we actually made the film a lot to have intergenerational conversations in Palestine. And Rula Salame, who is a producer in the film and who is here in the room with us today, has been leading that on the ground. And it's been really interesting to see the conversations that have emerged between the first intifada leaders of generations and the young Palestinian women and men today. One thing that we learned early on, which was a lesson, you know, just to share as you go around thinking how to uh, sort of build the, the film and the outreach campaign and how this conversation is going to take place, is that it was really important for these conversations to feel like a two-way street where everybody's learning mm. together, right? Because I think we've seen like tremendous leadership from youth today. Right, from the parkland leaders uh, sort of really taking the issue of you know, fighting for gun control in this country to a, a whole new level, uh, to Greta in Europe fighting for you know, really wanting to put environment on the front of us. Um, and we've seen young people actually being creative, being strategic, taking leadership roles. And if we can make this about like learning across generations, I think we will have really super powered movements because we all have different things to contribute and we can really like grow together. I, I also just want to say that like every 10 or 15 years or so, a group of grown-ups wakes up and says, oh no, I'm middle-aged. And then they go, oh, the young people, they're terrible. You know, we do that. We go through this period of every 15 years, we talk about how terrible kids are. So there are different iterations of how generations get their information, how they communicate, what they think about things. And the young women who say they don't have to be feminists, two of whom were my own daughters for quite a period of their adolescence, they come around. They do come around, they always come around. And um, so I, I think we have to keep taking the stink out of feminism, first of all, because that's still a work in progress. And we just have to keep telling these stories because if they are not visible, they're not possible. First, just kudos to Abigail for uh, supporting women filmmakers and for... Lame for, for bringing women, peace, and security into a top-notch university, and hopefully WPS studies will allow more people to be educated in, in, in what's going on in the world and to all of the impressive filmmakers. Um, I spent over 34 years in the UN in six peace operations, so I was very moved by some of the comments made. Lame and others underlined, I think, how just not the media, but the international community, and the UN specifically, is out of touch with the role women were playing before the UN is deployed. My question is, how can people like you connect with the people planning 
and structuring those missions. The Haiti situation, which is really terrible between the many cholera victims and the many SEA, sexual exploitation, abuse, and paternity cases, mothers with babies that are still bargaining to get even any kind of compensation from the UN because the way they've structured this compensation fund. How did you find that those women peacekeepers, um, did they have an opportunity to react and to relate to those women, in this case, victims? Thank you. No, um, I think that I can respond to the question ab about the, obviously, the, the women when we were on the ground with them. Basically, the, the scandal around, the multiple scandals, I should say, around the sexual abuse came later. So the women on the ground, actually, a lot of what they were assigned to do, they, were, they did some investigations. They were assigned to do investigations. And they were also assigned to patrol camps, the IDP camps, as they were called, internally displaced persons camps, where there was a lot of violence and there was you know, also a lot of sexual violence. And so they were meant to be a presence there. They also did crowd control and public safety at protests. What I found really interesting is in those camps that they patrolled, they became known. You know, they were obviously known. And what we saw that was incredibly interesting for us is that when previously, apparently, there had been men patrolling those camps. And when the men would patrol the camps, the women and children would literally go inside into you know, their shelters and would shy away from them and were fearful of them. When the women patrolled the camps, they were followed. Children would come out and walk with them and want to hold their hands, and there was always inter there was interaction between the women. Were some of those women possibly you know, survivors of the abuse? Honestly, we don't know because no one, there were not women who spoke directly to our women about them. The, the women we were following too, though, were, because they were a formed police unit, their duties were very specific. Oftentimes, as you, as you know, it is the individual, those individual police officers who are assigned to specifically sexual assault, but the women were really there to be sort of, to be um, preventative. And, and they were often, they were, if there was some, there was a situation where there was violence, they would come, you know, they would intervene, they would possibly arrest a perpetrator. So that is how they would get involved. But they, and, and women would come to them seeking help for things that were happening within the camp, but they did not directly hear of complaints against the, the peacekeepers that were active at that time. I think as, as far as how the UN, this film, my, again, the film was made prior to Women, War, and Peace, and you know, we were, we came, Ginny came to us, you know, after the film was out, we made it between 2013 and 2014. So the film screened at the UN. There was actually a screening with Ban Ki-moon. There were multiple screenings and we've been in conversation with them. And, and I would just say that um, Jamie Dobie is here somewhere. The Pieces Loud has cut together about a 20 minute reel that is already being used to train mediators at the United Nations. So we're very much on that. We've worked with the US Naval War College to train potential peacekeepers there. But with the United Nations, the idea that they're ever surprised that there's a sexual abuse scandal among their peacekeepers is absurd. And it's evidence of a persistent and willed unknowing of these very serious things that if, if they were really you know, on the up and up, frankly, they would be out preventing 
and thinking much more deeply about before they ever get there. We spent time in the Congo in Goma and they're expanding concentric circles of, of brothels around every UN deployment in the world. Um, and the more miserable a place is, the worse it is. So it's a very important cultural prejudice and an unwillingness to really bite the bullet and, and make the changes that need to be made. You know, there's a, there's a kind of mythology that once you put a military uniform on a guy, you know, he's just gonna rape people. That's just what's gonna happen. In fact, in, in um, Okinawa, um, right after World War II, there was a, a telegram that went out from the head military officer for the US there to the Pentagon. And basically what he was saying was, well, I have two choices. I can set up brothels or I can let the guys rape. But if you don't let me set up brothels, there's gonna be rape and then we're gonna have a problem. So basically, which is how you need to understand that the brothels and rape are related things. But he was throwing up his hands saying, I don't have, you know, I can't, I can't do anything about that. that. That has been the narrative of war and sexual violence since the beginning. But Napoleon Bonaparte, when he marched across Europe, would summarily execute any man who was caught sexually assaulting any woman. And remarkably, there was very little sexual assault in that. <laughs> that was so surprising. So it turns out they can control themselves. And so the problem actually isn't the perpetrators, it's the tolerators. And that's who we need to target. Yeah, thank you. And just to leave it, end this. Um, one, one thing that's been raised, and I've raised many times, the UN refuses to adopt any rule that simply bans uh, romantic and sexual relations yeah. with women. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty, the, the, pretty uh, the current policy hasn't worked for the last 45 years. So, I mean, it it's, gets to your toleration level. Thank you very much. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for all of this. My question is, what is the importance of empowering women, especially in conflict areas, for them to be able to contribute to peace building and not only to women's yes. rights? And how to do that? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything. Go for it. Go for it. I'm a student I, 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 at Colombia, and I'm very proud feminist, so don't worry about us. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's a lot of empowerment that needs to happen. I think one of the, the, the things that we tend to miss is that women tend to look at peace from the human security perspective. So all of those things that led to war in the first place are the things that they are working on. From the, like I said earlier, from the beginning of the firing of the first bullet, these women are concerned about the safety and the security of the community, healthcare, food, water, and sanitation. And before you can even blink, they've mobilized around those issues. So no one needs to come into any space to teach them to say, this is what you need. Most times we come with some form of narrative. A few years back, we were in the Congo, and the, the narrative of the Congo was, the rape capital of the world. Abby and I had gone there. This is way before anything. And when I asked those women in every region, because we travel to every region, what is the key problem here? Rape came five or six on the list. It was not number one. So most times we have this perception that women need to be empowered if we were going into these spaces and basically saying to them, how can we accompany you on this journey, we we'll know that there is a lot of power there and all they need is maybe some sort of support. I'll end with a few years back saying at the State Department that women in places where there are war, 
do not need empowerment. They need resources. I mean, they do not need people to come and show them the way. They need resources. Whereas in the places where there are a lot of resources, most times they need people to show them the way. Well, first I just wanted to thank you all. I stand in awe of all of your work. And my question is, what can we do tomorrow to help scale your work? That's a, that's a challenging question. Thank you. First of all, help us get the word out about the series. It's not just a matter of people seeing it, which is important. But, you know, honestly, if we, if we get good ratings, there's more of this to come. We need to land and we need people in the broadcasting business to understand that this content is wanted and is eaten up. Otherwise, you will continue to get the same thing. So that comes to the second thing. We're Americans. And, and when I go to audiences in America and talk about this, they all talk as though the war has nothing to do with them. I mean, there's no war here. What are you talking about? Which is an astounding thing to me, given the amount of years we've been at war, the amount of our budget we spend on war, the amount of our budget we're going to spend more on on our war if, if this budget passes. So we need to mount a credible peace movement in this country. We need to elevate the idea of peace. So, you know, what can you do tomorrow? I would say stop rewarding the people who feed our children a constant diet of violence and, and chaos and nihilism, because that is essentially what you reward when you buy a video game like Death Race 2000 or you know, when you go to see the Transformer films, and I'm sorry, that is an unpopular thing to say, but you are giving money to people who will continue to craft the imaginations of the generations of, after us in a way that is perverse and will only give us one kind of an outcome. I think also one way people can do is to support the work of women. I mean, if you look at women's movement across the world, they get the dreck of funding they, they, they manage with very little. So if you find yourself in a space where you're able to give financial support to some of the work that women are doing around the world, you should. Can I just say one last thing? Um, <laughs> the question of um, an endowment for the program that Lema is starting here is, is one that's of immediate interest, obviously, to both Lema and me. Um, but it, ha it has a greater purpose, and that is that as long as institutions are not institutionalizing women, mm. we will always be sort of bouncing off of the outsides of things and will never really penetrate the center. And that's essentially why there's no institutional memory, there's no cultural memory, there's the persistent forgetting and erasure. We have to be at the centers of the powerful institutions because only then will we be able to alter them. Formidable institution like Columbia University giving centrality and weight and, yes, money to a women, peace, and security program is a statement that this is a feminist institution. It supports feminist work, and that will change it fundamentally. And on that note, that is all the time we have. Let's give a big round of applause to all our panelists. 
You've been listening to an edited version of a recent panel discussion devoted to the series Women, War, and Peace II, held at Columbia University in New York. Women, War, and Peace II is executive produced by Abigail Disney and Ginny Redeker for Fork Films and Steven Segaler for 13 Productions LLC for WNET. It has its broadcast premiere on PBS on Monday, March 25th and Tuesday, March 26th from 9 to 11 p.m. For more information about the films and streaming of individual episodes, log on to pbs.org slash womenwarandpeace. Thank you for listening, and join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And please share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org. And of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.